Hello and welcome to the Bible Initiative Podcast. My name is Tim Fritzen. I'm the lead pastor at Liberty Christian Fellowship, and we are about halfway through our year-long walk through the large scope of the story of the Bible, the narrative of the Bible. We're in the book of Daniel this week, which contains both narrative and prophetic portions of text. Throughout the Bible, there are places where God communicates with his people through prophecies or divine revelations of events that the Lord will certainly bring to pass. In places and and at certain times, these prophecies are filled with imagery that can often be hard to understand or difficult to unpack. This has been the case for scholars and theologians and everyday Bible readers throughout history. So if you find yourself reading some of the prophecies and visions in Daniel and saying to yourself, what in the world does that mean? Know that you're not alone. In fact, at times the interpretation of biblical prophecy has even led to divisions within the church. The simple reality is that God's revealing of future events through prophecy is not intended to confuse or to puzzle or to divide. In fact, those very prophecies are intended to encourage and edify and strengthen God's people. In this podcast, our hope is to offer some tools for understanding how to work with biblical prophecies so as to understand them as best as possible as you're reading through Scripture. To do this, we're going to take a general look at the book of Daniel and a very specific look at Daniel chapter 9 in a podcast we're calling Understanding the Prophecies of Daniel. The book of Daniel can generally be split into two large pieces. The book's 12 chapters long. Chapters 1 through 6 are narrative. They're also linear. They move forward throughout Daniel's life, telling the story of his time in exile. Then chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic. They contain a number of different visions from the Lord, and they're not chronological. In fact, they kind of move in and out through various pieces of Daniel's life, but they're not written strictly in a linear fashion. Even within the writing of the book itself, in the, init- in the original text, there are uh, divisions in the same place. Chapters 1 through 6 were written in Aramaic. Chapters 7 through 12 were actually written in Hebrew. Now, if you were present on Sunday morning or you've listened to the sermon podcast over Daniel chapter 1, remember a very important piece. The narrative portions of Daniel give us insight into what life was like for some Israelite people during this exile period. For 70 years, the Israelite people lived outside the land that was supposed to be theirs. And the reason they're sent into exile is actually a fulfillment of what God said he would do. If the Israelites worshipped other gods in the land that he had promised and provided to them, he would remove them from it. Yet, the book of Daniel, all of it, both narrative and prophetic, provides this beautiful picture of God's ongoing faithfulness and commitment to his people. How do the prophetic portions of Daniel fit into that? I want to offer two very brief answers to that question as we get started. First, the prophetic visions from the Lord that Daniel has underline the reality that God is still working in and among his people in their exile. Despite their sin and his judgment, he has not abandoned the Israelites. He's still communicating with them via prophets, just as he had done before the exile. Second, the visions themselves are a reminder that God is in control and that he is still moving the course of human history toward his desired end. Nothing is happening that he is not aware of. Nothing is happening that he is not working in and through for the sake of his will. Both of these would have provided great comfort for God's people. As we move into the specific prophetic portions of the book of Daniel, where I want to start is with a a broad overview of the visions that Daniel has. 
twice in the narrative portion of Daniel, Daniel interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. That happens in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. And one time, he interprets writing on a wall for Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. All three of these incidents prefigure and give us some insight into Daniel's ability to see and understand the visions that God is going to give him in subsequent chapters of the book. Here are a couple of general tips for understanding the prophecies in the book of Daniel, but also prophecies in other places in the Bible. Some chapters offer their own interpretation of what Daniel has seen. Lean into those. Chapter 7 and chapter 8, Daniel gives a vision, and then right after that, there's an interpretation of the vision. Read the vision, try to understand it for what it is, but then also really pay attention to what that interpretation is that Daniel himself gives us. The next tip is don't get lost in the weeds. Look for big, overarching themes or realities. Don't necessarily try to answer the question, what does this tell me about the future? Instead, ask the question, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about his character? Does this tell me anything about God's work in history past? Does it tell me anything about his work in redeeming humanity? Those questions are more beneficial. Here are some examples of that. Daniel chapters 7 and 8 contain two separate visions, both referring to future kingdoms that are going to come and rule, specifically Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those kingdoms and their kings are not ever named, but instead are referred to in terms of a series of animals. And so what do we take away from something like that? I think the ESV Transformation Study Bible sums it up really well in its notes. It says this, God knows all that will occur and has not lost control over any of it. God rules over all kingdoms, leaders, and events with utter authority and divine wisdom. He is worthy of our praise and our trust. Commentators will debate the details, but no one questions the message of the big picture, that God calls every nation that opposes him into judgment, and he will ultimately destroy them, although he may allow his purposes to be fulfilled by them for a time. That's a really good summary of what you could take away from Daniel 7 and 8, even if you don't fully understand exactly what's happening in the visions. Do you have to know what every image stands for? Absolutely not. Is there a place for that, and can it be beneficial to work toward that understanding? Certainly, and there are great resources out there to help with that if you're interested. But are there bigger realities that we can take away and use an application in our lives today? Yes. And that's what we should sink into. Chapters 10 through 12 offer one extended vision involving a man, which could be an angel or it could be a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Scholars debate back and forth about that. And the whole purpose of the vision is stated in chapter 10, verse 14, that it's for days yet to come. The vision culminates with some statements about the end times in chapter 12 that should offer us great encouragement. You may struggle with some of the imagery in chapters 10 and 11, and that's okay. You're not alone in that. It's confusing. It's hard to unpack. But then you arrive in chapter 12, and you get these words. There shall be a time of trouble such has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And there is the beauty of the prophecy 
contained in chapters 10 to 12 of the book of Daniel. This is what we can take away from all biblical passages that deal with the quote-unquote end times. Namely, there's an end. It is coming, and when it does, those who have their names written in the book of life, thanks to faith in Christ, they're going to spend eternity with the Lord. Those whose names are not written in the book of life will spend eternity separated from the Lord. That should give us both hope and joy in the prospect of eternity, but also an urgency with the message of the gospel today. All of this leads us to Daniel chapter 9, which is where we want to spend the remainder of our time in this podcast. But hopefully, whether you've read Daniel 7, 8, and 10, 11, and 12 or not yet, I hope that those provide a little bit of context for you as you interact with the visions and the prophecies that Daniel unfolds for you in those chapters. Don't get lost in the weeds. Look for the really big realities and ask yourself, how do I live in light of the bigger truth of what's being unfolded for me here? Let's now turn our attention specifically to Daniel chapter 9. You're going to want to have your Bible open to this passage, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to walk our way all the way through the chapter. It generally splits into two parts. So take a second and get your your Bible open, get situated, pause this podcast if you need to. You're going to want to be able to follow along in Daniel 9. Verses 1 through 19 contain a prayer from Daniel. Then verses 20 through 27 deal with what Daniel sees and experiences immediately following that prayer. Let's start with the prayer itself. We're told that it takes place during the reign of the king Darius. That's the same king that tossed Daniel into the lion's den back in chapter 6. Daniel, we're told, has read the work of Jeremiah. We're actually told that in verse 2. Jeremiah is a fellow prophet who's living and speaking and writing during the exile. They could have possibly even known each other. Regardless, Daniel has seen and heard Jeremiah's work, and he recognizes it as the word of God. Having read that, he turns to the Lord in prayer, and his prayer is remarkably beautiful. I want us to see four things as we walk our way through this prayer. The first is that he constantly appeals to the character of God. Look at verse 4. It says this, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Daniel appeals to God's character. In fact, it's what leads him into prayer that God is great and awesome, that he keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him. Jump down to verse 9. Daniel prays, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. That God is merciful and forgiving. Look at the very end of verse 18. It says, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. All throughout the prayer, Daniel appeals to the character of who God is. And those things are lifted straight from Scripture. When we pray, we should do the same thing. Appeal to God's character, not because that's somehow going to help our prayer come true, but because it it's what compels us into prayer and into relationship with the Lord. The second thing to notice is that Daniel understands his own sinfulness. Remember, this is Daniel we're talking about. He is this fantastic example of faithfulness to the Lord. And yet, in comparison to the righteousness of God, he understands that he's no different than anyone else. And because of that, he identifies himself with the sin and idolatry of the Israelite people. Follow along with me from verses five, or from verse five down to verse 11. 
It says this, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Daniel puts himself right in the middle of that. He understands that he also is sinful when compared to the righteousness of God. He's not praying about the sinfulness of someone else. He's praying about his own sin. The third thing is that he also understands that the Israelite people are receiving what they deserve. Let's continue on in verse 11. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel has an understanding that what the Israelites are experiencing in exile is exactly what they deserve, but also exactly what God predicted. And so he arrives at the end of his prayer in verse 19, and he prays boldly that God would act on behalf of his people for his sake. That's the fourth thing I want us to see. Let me just read verse 19. It's incredible. He prays, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That prayer from Daniel, appealing to who God is, to his character, understanding his own sinfulness, understanding the justness of God's action, and yet boldly praying that God would act for the sake of his name and his people is a beautiful picture of crying out to the Lord in the midst of a just judgment. And so it's right in the middle of that that the chapter takes a quick pivot from recounting a prayer of Daniel to recounting a vision that the Lord gives Daniel. Beginning in verse 20, the angel Gabriel shows up to speak to Daniel. In fact, he shows up, we're told, while Daniel was praying and speaking to the Lord. This is what we're told in verses 20 and 21. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening prayer. That's how quick God's answer comes to Daniel. It comes while he was still praying. We're also told exactly why an answer comes. Jump down to verse 23. 
This is Gabriel speaking. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. I would argue that that is both about Daniel in specific, but all of God's people in general. He loves his people so much that he responds to them when they cry out. And what God brings to Daniel in response is a picture of what is to come. I want to make a quick note before we go on here and begin looking at verses 24 to 27. There are multiple ways to interpret this vision, and that's the case with just about every end-time sort of prophecy that exists in all of the Bible. And so what I'm going to offer in this podcast is just one of those interpretations. In bigger terms, what I hope to do is show the larger implication of what God is showing Daniel in the Israelite people. Verses 24 to 27 of Daniel chapter 9 are what are commonly referred to as the 70 weeks of Daniel. I'm just going to read those four verses in full one time, and then we'll come back and walk through it. So here's what it says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophecy, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed." And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate, on the desolator. Excuse me. There are the verses. Four verses. It's packed with some kind of confusing statements that we're just going to walk our way through one interpretation of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, let's just start with what are 70 weeks. Well, a week is just a grouping of seven somethings. And the vast majority of scholars, regardless of their theological bent, agree that these 70 somethings are 70 groupings of seven years. So seven years times 70 groupings, that would be 490 years. That what the text here is talking about is some breakdown of a 490-year period. So there comes a couple of divisions. Let's just go back to verse 24. Seventy weeks, 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city. To do what? Well, to do the following. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. That's three things. To bring in everlasting righteousness is a fourth. To seal both vision and prophecy is a fifth. And to anoint a most holy place. So over the course of this time, those six things are what are ultimately going to happen. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So seven times 70, there, should, there shall be 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So there's 
one grouping of seven weeks and one grouping of 62 weeks. That's 49 years in the first grouping and 434, 62 times seven, in the second grouping. After that period, we're told that the following should happen. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So there's the period of time that we're working with. If you add up 49 and 434, you get 483 years. And at the end of that time, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So there's a logical question at this point. When does the clock start ticking on this 483-year period? Well, we were told that it will begin from the issuing of a decree, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. That was in the middle of verse 25. You're welcome to flip over and check this, but that decree is actually given by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. And the date of that, historically, uh, you can go back and look from sources outside the Bible that it would have taken place in 445 B.C. So 445 B.C. is the beginning of the clock ticking on a 483-year period. The first seven weeks, the first 49 years, Uh, One interpretation is that this corresponds to the time that was taken in rebuilding Jerusalem, not just rebuilding the temple itself, which is what the book of Ezra is mostly about, but rebuilding the actual city, the walls and everything inside it. It was a 49-year period, and that began, the clock started ticking on that in 445 B.C., So let's do some quick math. 483 years total beginning in 445 B.C., if you were to just do the subtraction there, 483 minus 445, you would get 38. That would be 38 AD. But you've got to actually add one because there's no year zero. So now it's 39 AD. So from 445 BC, 483 years later, we're in 39 AD. What in the world does that importance does that have with anything? The answer is not a whole lot, but it's because there's an extra component of this. Our calendar today has 365 days in a year, unless it's a a leap year, of course, but the Jewish calendar only had 360 days. You can press pause on this if you want and do all the necessary math, but I'll skip to the end for you. Taking a Jewish calendar, that means that there are 2,415 fewer days or 6.7 years that we would need to adjust backwards. So you take 39 AD, you chop off 6.7 years, adjust for any necessary leap years, and you end up with a number that falls sometime in the spring of 33 AD. So let me ask you a question. Was there an anointed one who was cut off somewhere around 33 AD and who came to put an end to transgression and sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint a most holy place. You better believe that there was a person who was cut off at that time, who was the anointed one. His name was Jesus Christ. And we're talking about the year he was crucified and resurrected. Now, he hasn't finished all that work of those six things, but he will finish it when he returns. And some think, again, this is one interpretation, that that's what the 70th seven is. We read about it in verse 27. Here's what verse 27 says. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's what verse 27 has to say about the 70th seven. Now, if 
that were going to lead up to Christ's second coming when he would put a final end to transgression, a final end to sin, a final end to iniquity. He would bring everlasting righteousness for all of eternity. He would put a final end to all vision and prophecy, and he would anoint for himself a most holy place. It means that there's got to be some huge gap between the end of verse 26 and the beginning of verse 27. Some believe that the final seven-year period, the final week, the 70th week of Daniel, described in verse 27, is essentially the seven-year period that's described in the book of Revelation. Others think differently. Again, there are different ways to interpret this sort of prophecy. I walk through all of that to say this. We know some things for certain. Daniel prays that God would act on behalf of his people. God responds by sending Gabriel to give him this vision of a time when an anointed one, a Messiah, will come and bring everlasting righteousness to his people by atoning for their sin and iniquity. And there will come a day when transgression and sin no longer exist at all, but we spend eternity in the most holy place, that place being the new heaven and new earth where sin is not present for all of eternity. Daniel prays that God will act behalf on his people for his name's sake, and God sends Gabriel to say, you better believe that I'm going to act on behalf of my people for the sake of my will. No matter how someone wants to interpret this passage, there's a concrete reality for us to stand on, and that's that God's grace has triumphed over humanity's sinfulness and will ultimately triumph over all sin, and we can take comfort in that. God has always had a plan for bringing this about, and he's been working toward it throughout time. As we've said and talked about repeatedly throughout the Bible initiative, the Bible is the story of God working to redeem humanity from their sin through his Son. And Daniel gets a peek into the reality of God's working toward the fulfillment of that plan. Some call this passage the quote-unquote keyhole to biblical prophecy. The reason they call it that is because in it, Daniel saw, and we get to see, an unlocking of how God intends to redeem his people, to redeem humanity. It's an incredible chapter of Scripture. I want to end with a quote from Mark Dever. He's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. When he's talking about the book of Daniel, Dever encourages believers with this truth. He says, ultimately, the book of Daniel is about the survival of God's people. They will be victorious. For the children of God, God's future victory is certain. It does not hang in the balance. And Because of this truth, God's people have always been able to and can continue to rest in the assurance of the certainty of his plan. The narrative portions of Daniel show us what it looks like to be faithful in a faithless society. The prophetic portions of Daniel show us that God is moving his plan forward according to his will. And both of those means that we can be confident in the gospel and in God's faithfulness to us when we live in its light. We hope and we pray that this podcast has been helpful in your understanding of this week's reading throughout Daniel, particularly through some challenging prophetic portions. And what we're praying for you as you read this week is that through the book of Daniel, God would continue to capture your heart with the reality of his work to redeem humanity from their sin through his son, Jesus Christ, the reality of the gospel, and that he would capture your heart with what it means to live in light of its truth in our world today. As always, please know that we're praying for you as you read this week, and we look forward to continuing to walk through scripture with you through the Bible Initiative. 